Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, and welcome back to New Books and Anthropology on the New Books Network. I'm Jacob Doherty, the host for this episode. Today, we're talking to Professor Lindsey Green Sims, Associate Professor of Literature at American University and author of Postcolonial Automobility, Car Culture in West Africa, published in 2017 by the University of Minnesota Press. Lindsey Green Sims, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the book, can you tell me a bit about your background and how you came to this topic? Sure. Um, so this started out as a, a dissertation at the University of Minnesota. Uh, it's morphed um, quite a bit from from that. Um, but I was in the Department of Cultural Studies and Comparative Literature. Um, and the idea for this came uh, one particular semester. I believe it was my third, second or third year uh, of graduate school. And I was taking two two seminars at the same time. Um, one was a seminar about globalization theory with uh, Timothy Brennan. Um, and in that class, we were reading all sorts of theories about space-time compression, the speed of modernity, the spread of modernity, um, <clears throat> all sorts of things that one would um, read to think about global um, global shifts and global changes. And at the same time, I was taking an African cinema class with Charlie Sugnet. And what, where this project came from really was the dissonance between these two seminars. Um, in the African cinema class, um, we were watching a lot of films um, that produced or that reproduced the effective experience of living and traveling and moving in West Africa that really didn't match up and align with um, this idea of, you know, speed and lines of flight that we were, that I was reading about in the globalization class. Um, and we were watching, and I had actually, um, I had studied abroad in Cameroon in 1999. So when I was taking this African cinema class, I remember feeling that some of the films that we were watching, actually in particular Cartier Mozart, which becomes um, one of the main films I discuss in chapter three. Um, I remember feeling that, thinking that these films really felt um, really matched um, experiences of traveling and automobility. Um, so in Cartier-Mozart uh, by Jean-Pierre Bacolot, there's this one scene where this police chief pulls over um, a man in a wheelchair because the man was speeding down a hill. Um, and I remember just being really struck by that scene um, in part because of its, you know, um, of, of its humor, but also of the way that it really connected power to um to mobility um, and, and the way that I had experienced in Cameroon. I had, I, there was at one point where I was taking a taxi somewhere um, and the taxi got pulled over and um, they didn't have like the proper emergency equipment or something, something very, some very, very minor infraction, which was really, they didn't have the bribe to pay. And I got, and the, the taxi guy got like taken away. And I remember being sort of like tossed out on the road in this city that I had just arrived in with this large duffel bag and just kind of feeling bewildered. Um, but Cartier Mozart really also reproduces this, fil- this, this, um, this 
feeling of bewilderment um, in in an urban setting in the 1990s, um, which is which is very specific. In the 1980s, Cameroon had this really powerful middle class and paved roads and traffic circles. Um, and during the era of structural structural adjustment, this this was really becoming undone. Um, so anyway, this is sort of a long way of saying that the that the the idea for this book emerged out of um, the very different types of things that I was reading and, and trying to put these together, trying to think about how car culture, how automobility in West Africa um, is and an, uh, is part of this globalization discourse and also um, counters it. Great, thanks. And so to get started to dive right into the book, could you lay out uh, one of the kind of parallel arguments that you make to that throughout the book about how West African experiences of automobility disclose some of the paradoxes, not just of globalization, but of automobility uh, as a cultural system, as as that's developed in the United States. Yeah, yeah. So um, actually, you know, part of the background too ties into that. Um, at first, this was really going to be a book that critiqued this idea of automobility. And by what I, what I mean by automobility isn't just cars that move. Um, I'm thinking about it um, in particular um, about the, what it, what it enables. Um, so the auto and automobility being, being about, um, this self-propelled journey. Um, Mike Featherstone talks about, um, how the auto and automobile was initially referring to the idea of, uh, a self-propelled, uh, motor vehicle that was free from the dependence on an animal. And, um, James Flink and, the automobile automobile age talks about this this mass personal automobility. So I'm really I was really thinking about um, the about automobility as this sort of individualized um, form of mobility um, and about critiques of it. Um, there's a book called Against Automobility, um, which was something that I read really early on. I think it's it's 2006. I think I read it right when it came out. Um, but the editors there in their intro talk about how um, the pursuit of individual mobility becomes collective immobility. So they're talking about all these core antagonisms of automobility, right? So this, this idea that you can get in the car that's not dependent on a track or a timetable and you can go whatever, wherever you want, whenever you want, um, is, is sort of, um, uh, contradicted or, or upended by the fact that this car depends on, um, oil on car manufacturers, on laws, on police officers, on roads, on signs, uh, advertisements, uh, gas stations. Um, so it's really the system of, of dependency, um, and that was what I was really thinking about. The original, the original idea, the the, the chapters that I kind of imagined first were the um, the chapter about about francophone cinema um, and the chapter about Shoyinka and that. Um, and the road accident. So I was really at first kind of thinking about how these films contradict or, or bring out these core antagonisms of automobility. Um, but then as I progressed and I did more research, um, I started thinking about Nollywood films, African popular culture. Um, I was doing archival research in Dakar and, and, learning about, which we'll probably get into later, but learning about how African entrepreneurs um, during the colonial era were really responsible for motorizing West Africa. They were the ones that brought in cars and the colonialists, the, uh, the colonial officers were like, you know, a little, uh, not particularly enthusiastic about it at first. Um, so the more that I got into it, 
um, the more that I started thinking about all the pleasures and all the possibilities that car, that car culture provided um, and all the ways um, that, that automobility was also about self-making and self-realization. So then, so then the sort of contradictions that I was thinking about originally um, began to shift a bit, a little bit. Um, I, I noticed that in West African film and literature, cars are, are discussed with, with, really a particular urgency and also a particular ambivalence. Um, and, um, and it's not, um, it's, it's never, it's never about one thing in particular. So it's about how automobiles are part of this, this lived experience um, in a, in an unevenly globalized world where, where technology sometimes breaks down or sometimes doesn't work or cars are, you know, older or repaired. Um, but also at the same time, um, it, it's very much a part of self-making, a part of what it means to be an aspirational modern subject. Um, and so these were, you know, these were some of the arguments um, that began to drive, um, no pun intended, um, <laughs> that, that began to, to drive the, the narrative of, of my book. And you write that a lot of the texts that you're engaging with, the films, novels, plays, um, you write that they don't simply represent cars or reflect automobility in West Africa but are productive heuristic forms where the creators work through the relationships between people and cars. So can you say a bit about how this approach informs your reading of the key texts and aesthetic objects in the book? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I didn't want it to just be like, oh, and this is, um, I mean, I think this is uh, a lot of the work of literary studies is to kind of reject this. It's simple represent, it's simply a representation of the social. Um, and, um, so, so Carolyn Levine has a book on, on forms and, um, her work was really useful in help me, helping me kind of think about and articulate. Um, and I think that's actually, I think the productive heuristic forms, I think is a paraphrase from her, but she talks about how narratives, um, are particularly valuable because they, they set in motion and they, and they can track different social forms and they can, they can look at how social forms come into conflict with each other and overlap, um, for me in particular is also looking at, at, at feelings, how they, how they reproduce feelings of aspiration or frustration. Um, and, um, and Levine also mentions, um, uh, Bruno Latour and she says that he says in past, you know, she, she, she talks about a comment where he says in passing that, um, fiction writers are better than, than sociologists at capturing social relationships because um, they can experiment. Now I'm, I'm not saying that fiction writers are necessarily better. Actually, some of my best friends are, are sociologists, um, but there is something unique in particular about fiction at work, um, narrative fiction that, um, that I, that I work with and um, play with and, and work through. Um, and, and this also has a lot to do with form. Uh, automobility is the social form that I look at, uh, but I'm looking at what it hap what happens when it intersects in different literary forms in a Nollywood film, which you know are popular melodramas, the Nollywood films, or um, in a feminist novel, or in a francophone art cinema that's expressing frustration with modernity. Um, different aspects of um, the contradictions of automobility kind of become palpable and become apparent when you look at them in different um, literary forms. So the first chapter is called The Hum of Progress, and it focuses on the entwined histories of modernization and motorization in the colonial era. 
And as you mentioned, colonial administrators were often uh, hostile to the idea of motorizing Africa. But African entrepreneurs were very active in establishing a system of automobility nonetheless. So why the colonial ambivalence about the car? Um, well, to begin with, um, before World War One, um, cars before before Fords, lighter weight Fords were were, were introduced, um, cars were really heavy and they tore up roads. Um, sometimes they competed with the railroads that the colonialists had spent a lot of time and energy building um, and that they were using to extract goods. Um, and sometimes um, I, I talk about uh, the introduction of the first car uh, into uh, French Western Africa um, in, in 1900. Um, there was a businessman, a French businessman named um, Felix Dubois. Um, and um, there's this, there's a whole article about, you know, how he was ahead of his time and he was great. Um, but, but what I discovered is sort of buried in this article, um, which I found, um, I found in the national archives of, in, in Dakar, um, was this, 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 this comment from the governor of French Western Africa at the time that he was, he was nervous that photographers were there, um, taking pictures of this first journey. And what he was nervous about was that the car would break down um, and that French modernity and technology would, would basically look silly and look foolish. So um, there was also just sort of this um, skepticism about whether cars were really suited um, for, for the roads. Um, but uh, at the same time, um, West African entrepreneurs and chiefs um, didn't really seem to have this ambivalence. Um, so another another story I tell is um, about um, uh, in Benin during World War One. Um, these local chiefs had used they had they had received compensation money for recruiting soldiers, um, and so they used this to try to to buy cars. And they had asked some colonial officers who, to to help them procure the cars, um, and then the colonial officers basically tried to dupe them out of their cars. Um, and in a sense, they were, um, and in a sense, they were embarrassed that the chiefs were able to get cars before they were. But I mean, also there was definitely. Um, this this underlying racist ideology that you know Africans were are primitive um, and and you know and and not developed enough to you know to to drive to own cars to maintain cars um, which was of course ridiculous because the Africans were doing this way before the Europeans were in West Africa. So, what were some of the practices that they were involved with um, in in terms of importing or using cars at this time? Yeah, they were the they were the first. Uh, they were really pushing the the importation of cars. Um, they were they were kind of organically developing these um, like they're called indigenous transport systems, where that that still you know that still are how most people travel in West Africa today. Where um, you know you have a car, you get people. When the car fills up, you go. Um, <laughs> And uh, it, it was it, right. So it was, there's not bus schedules or um, timetables, um, but it, it had a certain amount of flexibility um, in um, in Ghana, Nigeria. Um, at the same time, there were these colonial film units that were that were traveling around showing these these very didactic British documentaries. Um, and some of the drivers of the colonial of the colonial film unit vans would would actually just you know, use them to transport passengers um, at the end of the day and, and make money. So there are a lot of ways that that Africans saw that cars, especially especially after World War One, especially when 
when Fords came in and they were lighter and easier, um, that Africans saw that this could be this could be profitable, this could be modernizing, um, this could be very useful to them. Um, so they they were definitely um, more interested at first than colonial officers were. And how did drivers appear in some of the kind of key texts of books, films um, that were emerging in that period? Yeah, yeah. So, well, um, so it's interesting because now I think um, drivers have this, especially drivers of, of, you know, taxi drivers or tro-tro drivers or different indigenous transport um, are kind of seen as low class. Um, But in the 1950s, not so much in the 1930s, but by the 1950s, they they really were these co- kind of cosmopolitan like cool hip figures um and the film that stands out the most um uh is the uh the very first film made by the gold coast the gold coast film unit um called the boy kumasenu which was 1952 um uh and this uh the afro jazz drummer guy warren plays this kind of um cool cool lorry driver driver um Ken Sarawiwa's Soza Boy, which was was written in the 80s, but um, it talks about um, the main character, Mene, who um, is a is an apprentice driver for this truck named Progress, which of course has you know lots of different meanings. Um, how he was very excited um, because he thought that um, that that once that he would apprentice for a while and then get his own license and then get his own truck. Um, and he said, you know, if he saves up his money and he saves up his, his chop money or his food money, money, um, then he could buy his own truck and that he could be a, you know, a big man, like any lawyer or doctor. Um, so this idea that the, the, that driving could, uh, provide you not only with status, but with a very, you know, a very respectable income, um, was certainly present in the 1950s and sixties, though it has, you know, that, that has changed a bit. And then moving a little bit into the first um, decades of independence, you contrast two novels by Usman Semben, uh, God's Bits of Wood and Niwam, to highlight some of the disillusionment and longing for infrastructural modernity that that uh, took place then. So could you say a bit about Usman Semben as a key figure throughout the book? Could you just say a bit about who he was and what these novels reveal about this, uh, this post-independence disillusionment? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Semben is definitely one of the key figures. Um, you know, he's often referred to as uh, the father of African cinema. Um, in the in the francophone cinema chapter, I talk about his his first film, Warum Sharet. Um, but before he was a filmmaker, he was he he wrote novels. Um, and uh, in 1960, he wrote a novel called God's Bits of Wood, which is a fictional account of the 1947 Dakar-Niger rail, railway strike. Um, and actually, he had taken part of in, taken part of that. St- taken part in that strike as well. Um, and in this film, in this, sorry, in this, in this novel, uh, I wish it were a film. Um, that would be fun. Um, he, he talks about the train um, and technology as, as, as part of this machine based future. Um, and he talks about how the strikers kind of gather at the railroad station um, and they begin to realize that, you know, as, as, as they strike it, that the machine, even though it was built by the, the, the colonials, that the machine belongs to them. So there's this very sort of optimistic and in, in some ways um, feeling about what transport technology can, can do and feel. And, you know, this is 1960 that it's written. So, or that it's published. Um, so right at the, on the, on the cusp of, of independence. Um, the other um, story that I talk about in this chapter is Niwam, 
um, which was it's a novella that was actually made into a film, but not by Semben, um, by, by Clarence Delgado. Um, Niwan was written in 1976, um, and it's about this man who um, who's from the village. He comes to the car with his sick son. His son dies, a baby, his baby dies at the hospital, um, and he's kind of shocked to learn that the cemetery that he has to travel to is all the way across the town. And so it takes place on this this bus, you know, this mode of public transportation. So in chapter two, uh, No Danger, No Delay, you tell this remarkable story about the Nigerian playwright and author Nobel laureate Wole Soyinka and his involvement in road safety campaigns in Nigeria. So could you say a little bit about this? This was really remarkable for me. Um, who was Soyinka and, and what role did he play in road safety? Yeah, in Nigeria? yeah it was actually, it was remarkable for me as well. Um, and I think I said in the intro, this was one of the first chapters that I had uh, had envisioned um, because because of of the way that he thinks about the accident but um so Shoyinka is um he's he's you know probably one of the the most famous african writers he's a nobel prize laureate um but he's also famous for being political he had spent 2 years in prison after um trying to broker a, a peace deal during the nigerian civil war the biafran war um he was exiled for speaking out against abacha um but what isn't really known or talked about, which is um, sort of less sensational, um, but obviously for me just as interesting, um, is that he was he was a huge advocate of road safety reform, um, and he actually urged the creation of the Oyo State Road Safety Corps in the 1970s, and actually went out and patrolled streets. Um, he wrote review sketches and comedies, and um, and he was very active in in talking about right safety and slowing down and and caution on the road um and then actually um in 1988 um the the federal road safety corps was was formed um and it it basically was an expansion of the one that he had urged the creation um and um babangida was was uh, the military regime of, of babangida was in power then um and he shoinka accepted this an invitation to sit on the council um and then to, to become its chairman and and he kind of got a lot of slack for you know he's here's this like anti-government figure for working with the military regime of the time but you know for him it was like you know, he, he was just appalled and he's, and he, you see it in, 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 you know, not just the play, the road that I talk about, but in some of his poems, Death in the Dawn, he was, he was appalled at, at the carnage on the road. Um, and, and so he was not only writing about it and writing about it from a philosophical, um, and, and very metaphysical point of view, but also from a really practical point of view. Um, so yeah, it was remarkable to me because in a sense, it kind of captured a lot of the things that I was thinking about and talking about um, in this project at large, the the confluence of of the literary form and the form of automobility and what happens when they um, when they intersect. But he's not at all didactic in his in his representation of it or, or his treatment of it. So can you tell us a bit about the oh, road? No, no, no. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, do, do you? I'm sorry. I didn't hear. Do did you ask me if I could could talk a bit about? Yeah. The so road? you say it sort of develops this idea of the Ungunian road. So maybe maybe start okay. with that. Yeah. 
Sure. Yeah. I'm sorry. You're cutting out a little bit, but I got that. Yeah. So the, the, so, so Ogun is the, is the patron God of the road and, and the, the God that, that Chuenka kind of connects with. Um, he's the God of metal and iron, um, but also creativity and new technology and, and transition. And so Ogun and, and the road are, uh, both, the site of both creation and destruction. Um, so the play, um, I mean, it's 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 a little bit hard to summarize it in terms of of the plot, but uh, it, it takes place um, on the urban periphery. Um, there's touts, um, so the people that kind of like hustle you into the the, the trucks and truck drivers, um, and um, and uh, this character called the professor who who runs a store out of an empty bolacaja, and a bolacaja was this. Um, kind of truck with a open back. It was one of the earlier forms of, of, of collective transport. And so he runs a store um, called the accident store. Uh, it's also a bar and he sells parts um, and goods that are gleaned from accident sites. Um, at the end of the play, um, he is, he's killed by one of the, um, by one of the, the characters. Um, and he has this, this kind of incredible speech where he's talking, where he's saying, and he's kind of the, the the bad guy in a sense of this of of in some ways of the play um and that he's sort of capitalizing on death and the accidents but he's got this speech at the end where he says to you know he he advises the 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 people at the bar to breathe like the road and be the road um and considering the whole the whole play is about accidents and accident sites and the, this driver who gets into accidents and becomes you know really just mentally paralyzed for Soyinka, the crash is the paradigmatic scene of West African automobility. But in chapter three, moving pictures, mired cars, it's the broken down car that's at the center. So uh, can you say what the two films are at the center of this chapter and how they used the stalled car to convey their uh, picture of mobility? Yeah, yeah. So the first film that I look at uh, is Usman Semben's Hala. The second film is um, Jean-Pierre Bacalo's Cartier Mozart, um, which I mentioned uh, at the beginning. But Semben's Hala is a, a 1973 film. It's oftentimes considered his masterpiece. Um, it, it's the protagonist is um, a man named El Haji Abdulkader Bey, and the film takes place um, at this. This it's got a great opening scene. Um, where it was the first time that uh, Senegalese has taken the presidency of the Chamber of Commerce. So all the men are celebrating. Um, El Haji invites them to his the his wedding. Of, he's taking a, a third wife on. Um, they all sort of celebrate the fact that an African is now in power. Um, interestingly, the uh, there's a scene where there where Frenchmen come in um, and hand each of the men uh, a briefcase of money. So the implication, of course, is though the African um, elite has taken or the, the national bourgeoisie has taken power, um, they're still backed by the French. Then they each of these these men get into their own um, fancy automobile. Most of them are Mercedes. Um, one of them is, is a Ford. And this is a really long, drawn out scene. Um, where they get into their cars, the cars sort of parade around um, the Place de l'Independence, um, and it's it's the cars are a very big part of this um, this this opening scene. It turns out that 
Alhaji, Hala actually means the curse of impotence. So Alhaji has been struck with the curse of impotence on his wedding night. Um, and a large part of the film revolves around him trying to figure out who who put the curse on him. And it turns out that the, the it, it's the a group of beggars that had put the curse on him um, because they because he had um, tricked them and misappropriated their land and sold their land. So he's responsible for their poverty uh, and they're responsible for his curse. And at the end, uh, of the film, El Haji. The, the film is so is very much about El Haji's downward spiral, the downward spiral of the elite. At the end of the film, um, his precious Mercedes that he's you know taken care to wash with Evian water um, is actually repossessed and it's it's pushed off screen because none of the soldiers um, that that are repossessing his car know actually know how to drive a car. Um, so there's a great scene where they're where the th- three men are, are literally pushing the Mercedes off screen. So the, the Mercedes comes to symbolize the excesses of the post-colonial elite um, that Semben removes. Um, Bacalo uh, is oftentimes seen as a, a filmmaker who's set up kind of in contrast to Semben. Semben films in the social realist mode. Um, Bacalo is uh, very avant-garde, very experimental, kind of all over the place. His film Cartier Mozart takes place in Cameroon um, in the 1990s. So we're dealing with a different era instead of immediate post uh, independence. We're we're dealing with the period of structural adjustment. Um, And I write that for Bacalo's film, Stasis is the point of departure. So he's filming Cameroon that is very much in the midst of structural adjustment Um, in Cameroon. um, Cars, which are tend to be very old at this point in the 90s, 20, 30 years old, um, are often called congelés or frozens, um, in part because they stall all the time, um, and in part because um, Cameroonians also called, um, because of structural adjustment, they they had to have, um, uh, there was a lot of imported frozen chicken, and the chicken chickens were also called congelés. Um, so it's kind of this pun where um, congelés refer both to the, the broken down car and also to the stasis um, that is a result of structural adjustment. So in Bacalo's film, cars sort of broken down cars or abandoned cars um, really litter the the neighborhood. So sticking with Bacalo just for the moment. Um... You also show how he uses cars as staging grounds for thinking about new kinds of mobility and new imaginaries of movement and travel. So how does he how does he convey that in the film? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as I mentioned in the previous ad, uh, answer, he's Beko's kind of known for this um, for for breaking the rules of cinema. A lot of film scholars have written about how the car and the film, uh, the car and the and the moving camera. Are, are connected. Gilles says that the camera is the equivalent of um, the airplane or the car or the boat. And um, Paul Virilio talks about you know, what goes on in the in the windscreen is is cinema in the in the, in the strict sense. Um, a lot of other uh, theorists, uh, Kristen Ross comes to mind, talks about the car and the camera being you know dual mechanisms for um, mobility and modern dis- modern consumption um, they they have they they instantiate dif- similar forms of 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 uh, subjectivity in space time um, and this was also particularly the case in colonial films i talk about in in uh, chapter 1 la quasi noir which is uh, this film about uh, citoyen they're called caterpillar cars that uh, the tour Africa with a camera mounted on the front. And there are a lot of documentaries, um, especially French documentaries with a camera mounted on the front. So the car 
um, and the and the camera really paired together. Um, Beccolo tries to undo this coupling, um, and instead of having the car symbolize the movement of the camera, he oftentimes stalls his um, he stalls his his film. Um, he puts in cars that don't really make sense. So um, the in the in in Cartier-Mos are the main characters, Queen of the Hood. Um, and she transforms magically um, into my guy, a teenage um, a teenage boy, because she wants the the sort of the mobility and freedom of the neighborhood boys. This takes place in a stalled car, but it's a really interesting scene. It's all in the dark. Beckel kind of tows the car on the scene, um, and then she transforms, uh, and then the car is towed off. And I'm using the the passive voice because it's not clear who's towing the car and why it's there. And then he as a narrator says, you know, where are they taking that car? I don't know. I'm going back to sleep. So he kind of denies the the logic of the narrator who gets to say and, 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 and see things. And in another scene, um, rather than using, putting the camera behind the windshield to sort of, you know, take in the landscape, he uses the windshield um, as a place where people write rumors about Queen of the Hood um, and Samdi. Samdi is the police chief's daughter. Um, it's actually not Queen of the Hood at that point. Um, she's transformed into my guy. So people write rumors about my guy in Samdi. Um, and this is indirect defiance to what the police chief said, which is, you know, keep this relationship quiet, keep it secret. Um, and so the, the windscreen becomes... Um, a place for kind of defying the police chief in a in passing notes and passing information um, rather than what the windshield in in, in cinema is, it normally looks like. So there's just a couple examples, but there's a lot of times in the in the film where where Beccolo, um uses the camera to to sort of um, display and engage with with ideas or, and and images of stasis. Going back to Hala, um, there we see automobiles are central to the construction of gender relations and different portraits of women in the film. There's the gift of a Mercedes as part of the wedding, which is contrasted with uh, Rama, the daughter of El Hajj, who's an incredible figure in the film, and she's moving around on a moped throughout. So could you expand a bit on this contrast and the dynamic between the moped and the yeah, car? Yeah, so Rama is a I'm is I'm glad you brought her up. She's a fascinating figure in this film. Um, so she's El Haji's daughter. Um, I mentioned in a previous answer that El Haji you know uses Evian water to to wash his car, um, and so there's this one dialogue where she goes to visit him at work and he offers her some Evian water and she says, I only drink tap water. Um, so she's in many ways set up as his foil. Um, she, he speaks to her in French. She, she responds in Wolof. Um, he wears Western business suits and she wears um, African boo-boos, but then also sometimes bell bottoms. Um, he was a, a former revolutionary who, you know, as you can tell from the plot sort of plot, summary before um betrays the ideals um and she espouses those ideals um so she, and so the her driving a moped is is one more example of how she's set up as his foil the interesting thing is that in the novel version of, of hollow which Semben wrote as he was trying to piece together funding for the film um she doesn't drive a moped she drives um a fiat and so what i think is interesting about that is um is this is my theory and I, I haven't been able to, to confirm it, but the actress who plays Rama is her name is Miriam and and she had played um, the, the year before 
um, the figure of Anta in Gilbert Mambetti's Tuki Buki. So Mambetti um, is this kind of surrealist um, filmmaker, and Tuki Buki is this this wild um, kind of uh, easy rider meets Bonnie and Clyde um, meets nothing that you've ever seen before, like motorcycle film around a car. Um, and Anta and and her boyfriend Maury ride around on this motorcycle that has like um, zebu horns on the front. Actually, um, uh, Beyonce and and um, and Jay Z kind of um, used one of their promotional photos for the on the run tour um, was basically they were they were pretending to be Anta and Mori um on this motorcycle. Um so Anta is this is this rebellious figure um and um and she's you know they 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 kind of travel around a car they steal money they're trying to you know get enough money to go to 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 Paris. Um and so I think that that um that Anta also informs the character of Rama in the film um, as she's as she transforms from the novel to the film, so I think a lot of ways Rama also signals if if El, Sta- El Haji and his his Mercedes signal the excess of the urban post colonial elite that have kind of stalled the country. Um, you know, Hala is literally means the curse of impotence. So the film is really you know an allegory about the impotence of of the of the elite of the national bourgeoisie. Um, Rama presents in many ways, not in all ways, because she's a complicated figure, but in many ways, an alternative to that, an alternative form of moving the nation forward and an alternative mobility. And she's selecting the parts of uh, international modernity that she wants to draw on. And exactly. Sort of together. Exactly. Exactly. She's not seen as this, you know, this traditionalist um, in any way. Um, she's, you know, she's got, some uh, posters in her room of, of Charlie Chaplin and also of, um, you know, African revolutionary figures. So she's, she's really kind of seen as, yeah, piecing things together in a way um, that, that, that I, that I think that Semben is saying that this is, this is a, this is a way forward. In chapter four, then you move from Francophone African cinema to Nollywood where cars take on an entirely different role, but continue to have a place in, uh, related critiques around criminality, the ethics of accumulation, and discourses of corruption. So why is this chapter called Return of the Mercedes, and what picture of automobility emerges out of Nollywood? Yeah, so Return of the Mercedes is um, in large part a, um, a reference back to the Mercedes that was pushed off screen um, in Hala. Uh, the thing about Nollywood film um, is that, so I mentioned um, at the er, early on in our conversation, um, about how automobility is the main sort of social form that I look at. But in each of the chapters, I look at what happens when automobility as a social form kind of comes into contact um, or intersects with different literary forms. So in the Francophone chapter, uh, Francophone art film chapter, when automobility intersects with Francophone art art film, um, you've got these these different images of stasis. Nollywood is a different game altogether. Um, Nollywood films are highly melodramatic. They're long. They last. Um, they're several parts. Um, they're really influenced um, by by like the the Latin American telenovelas that were on TV and, and popular and soap operas. So they have a very different aesthetic. Um, they the the video boom as it was called started um in Nigeria it started in the early 90s and Ghana it started a little bit before that um the Ghanaians were were actually first even though Nollywood 
um, is, is sort of what more well known and, and, and famous. Um, and it started at a time in Nigeria where it was, there was un, under military rule, um, there was again a, a, a lot of economic scarcity um, that was mixed with economic abundance. So this sort of contrast between the the new the nouveau riche and the people that were um, finding it harder and harder to to survive on a on a daily basis. Um, and also, you had the influx of video technology, um, what Brian Larkin calls infrastructures of piracy, um, meaning that video. Uh, VHS tapes at that at that time were really easy to to copy um, and to and to distribute, and you also had a lot of out of state television workers. You had um, people that had been in the theater that had talent and know how, um, but that weren't theater performances. Were it was people were finding it harder to pay for theater performances. Curfews meant it was hard to go to the cinema at night. So you kind of have this, all these factors that, that kind of mixed together to create this, this boom. Nollywood is the second largest film industry in the world now in terms of volume. Um, the films that, that they were making in the 1990s, one of the most famous uh, popular genres, um, it's, it's, it's gone out of fashion, but one of the most famous famous genres is, called, is sort of the occult film or the money ritual film. And so the first film that, that, um, that I write about and also the first film that kind of created this boom, it wasn't the first Nollywood film, but it was the first film that was popular enough for people to realize, wow, like we could do something here. This is, this is an industry. It's called Living in Bondage by, by Kenneth Nebway. The main character is a guy named Andy who moves from his, um, his village to Lagos and he's trying to figure out how to make money. And he's got a, a job, a regular job, but he looks around him and he says a lot of his friends have gotten really rich. Um, and the opening monologue, he's talking about, you know, so-and-so has a Mercedes, so-and-so has a Pathfinder, you know, what have I done wrong? And he runs into a friend of his um, named Paul. And Paul says, well, I can show you how to make money if you, if you really want it, but you've got to, you know, you've got to have heart, something like that. And then he says, yes, um, I, I want that. And it turns out that Paul is part of a cult, the cult of Lord Lucifer. And in order to, in order to to obtain wealth and riches and the Mercedes and the mansions, um, Andy is required to sacrifice somebody that he loves. And he's very shocked by this. He doesn't want to do it. But the men eventually convince him um, that you know if he sacrifices his wife, he'll get another wife, or if he sacrifices somebody he'll care about. He cares about. It won't matter because he'll have so much money that it, he he won't be concerned with anymore. So he consents and he brings his his wife. Her name is Merritt. So um, he he sacrifices her um, in this sort of bloodletting ritual, and he he becomes very wealthy. He eventually, um, you know, several hours later through the film, um, Merritt begins to haunt him. The ghost of Merritt begins to haunt him, um, and he goes mad and and sort of loses everything. So it's 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 a cautionary tale and the Mercedes, you know, it's more ambiguous than it is in Hala. So, you know, Andy drives this and this is, you know, this red blood color Mercedes. Um, he drives this Mercedes um, that he coveted so much. Um, but, you know, actually at the end of the day, very much like Hala, the way that he got the Mercedes was through nefarious means. So um, Nollywood film sort of both display um, this wealth, I think, in a way that the francophone films um, don't, um, or to I, I should say that the the, the Nollywood films they they linger a lot more um, on 
um, on the conspicuous consumption in Hala, the, the, the Mercedes driving elite is kind of parodied from the beginning, even though there's that long drawn out scene. Um, but in, in Nollywood films, there's a lot of conspicuous consumption. Um, and that's part of the point. Audiences get to sort of revel in the, in the conspicuous consumption. Um, but then also, you know, understand at the end of the film that there's going to be a sort of moral, moral. And so when you're talking about the 2007 boys cut, you trace a transition from the occult to the 419 as the kind of key index of, uh, corruption at the center of these that sort of draws out the contrast that you're pointing out between this vast, um, luxurious consumer lifestyles in a context where there's not very many legitimate strategies towards wealth accumulation. So, so how does this appear in boys cut and how, how do um, cars and the 419 fit together there? Yeah. Um, so she's um, her change. The, the novel that I discussed changes is her second novel. Um, her first novel is our sister Killjoy, which is um in, it's a novella in 1977 um, about the main character Sissy's time in in Germany, um, and it, that's really probably her more famous novel. Novel, but um, she's this sort of um, woman woman of many talents. Um, she she writes novels. She wrote theater, popular theater. Um, she was the minister of education at one point. Um, I first came across her work, I think, when. I was reading the intro to um, uh, Ayukwe Arma's The Beautiful Ones Are Not Yet Born. Um, and she talks about, you know, she's, she talks about, um, she kind of critiques his, this novel. And she says that so some of his, his female characters are, um, she say they're, they're, they're not believable characters because they're not economically autonomous. And she says, Ghanaian women always find a way to, to have their own income and, and make, um, make their own money. They're, you know, they're, they're creative in that sense. Um, and so she says that there's not really the, the explanation for women's oppression isn't really economic. Um, it has to do with these larger social systems. And that's what a lot of her work addresses is, is these larger social systems. Um, so she's actually, really a fascinating writer and changes um, is it's not a novel that, that people talk about or write about a lot. But one of the fun things is that um, when I've given conference presentations on this or, or when people have picked up my book, several people have said, Oh, I think I'm going to have to think about teaching changes now in a story on, you know, African women's writing or um, so, so I, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully that'll continue to happen because changes is really, I think a phenomenal novel. So the the texts take place about ten years apart. Um, changes um, the the main character of, of changes is Essie, um, and she's a, a she works she's a, a data analyst for the Department of Urban Statistics. Um, and at the beginning of the novel, um, she's she's the subject of marital rape. Her husband rapes her. Um, but there's not really a word for that, for her to say that. Um, it doesn't make sense um, in her society to say that a husband rapes her. Um, so she divorces him, um, but doesn't isn't really able to give anybody a reason why. Um, throughout the the novel, um, she's she's kind of dealing with the fallout of that. Um, so the novel is really interesting. And so it opens both novels or both, both texts open with, with women and women drivers and, and cars are very, you know, much part of the, the daily lives. Um, so she's basic, she's, she's at, at, at one, at once she's this sort of like 
kind of autonomous feminist. Um, she enjoys work. Um, being single gives her sort of freedom to like bring her work home with her, um, kind of do what she wants. She's got this car. She's got this house. She can, she can kind of live freely. Um, but she's also not particularly happy. Um, and, um, and so, so the, the novel is changes a love story um, is the, is the subtitle of it. And it, and it's very much, I, I read it as a sort of sarcastic, like what are the actual changes that, that she's capable of giving, given the systems that she has to navigate. Um, Fat Kine is, is a little bit different in tone. Um, it takes place 10 years later, both, both kind of take place um, at their, at the cusp of their country's um, transition to, to neoliberalism. So Fat Kine is born, um, the year of Senegal's independence. Um, it takes place um, just before the end of, um, of sort of the of, of socialist presidents and and social socialist rule um, in Senegal. I, I'm I'm hesitating because um, even in Hala, um, there was a kind of a critique of like what exactly is this? You know, what exactly is socialist about about the um, the regime? But anyway, Fatkini takes takes place um, just for Abdullah Awad comes to power. Um, and she's this woman, um, she's a single mom uh, of two. Um, the, the fathers of both of the, of the children um, have left her. One was a professor that took advantage of her. The other was a guy who basically duped her out of her money. Um, and so she's raving, raising these two kids, um, Abby and Jeep on her own, um, she's at the beginning driving them to, um, she's dr- dropping them off. It's the day that the, the results of their Bach are going to come out. So they're going to find out, you know, how they scored, where they can police into schools. Um, and she's also the manager of a gas station. Um, she started out as a, um, a gas station, an attendant, a, a, a pompiste, and now she's the manager of this gas station. So the whole film really is about kind of her taking control of mobility. And it is very, uh, very significant that it's the that's a it's a gas station, right? So she kind of oversees these cars that come and go. Um, so she's the center of 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 Fat Kine, which um, I read really also as a sort of like a feminist reimagining of of Hala in many ways. Yeah, and that contrast between highly visible wealth in the form of cars and highly invisible sources of wealth really runs through it uh, in this important way. Yeah, so a lot of what these texts, the the novel and the film, are getting at is how do you get by? How do you negotiate daily life um, in in a city, um, in a post colonial city? How do you negotiate urban structures, and how do you negotiate patriarchal structures? Um, so when I say that they're a lot about maintenance, um, I'm really thinking about how do you maintain, and and a lot of them are about about sort of the emotional state of these characters, right? So how do you how do you maintain emotional and mental stability. Um, I work too with, with um, Obiyama and Nemeka's concept of nego feminism, um, which is a feminism that kind of is about negotiation, about how you cope, how you kind of successfully get by and go around. So a a lot of what the, yeah. So, so, so rather than, you know, in the Nollywood films and Hala, um, it's a lot about aspiration, about getting the car, about getting the fancy car. And cars in, the, in these two texts, they're, they're much more ordinary. Um, they're, they're not, it's not, the characters aren't, you know, trying to move up. They've, they've basically, you know, they're basically le- leading these middle class lives. Um, so it's not about how they move up or, or you know, it's, it's, it's really how they move around and get by. 
So in the introduction, you introduced this idea about misplaced mobility. Um, so to wrap up the conversation about the book, can you explain how your analysis of West African automobility uh, misplaces or displaces the concept of mobility itself and what we can learn from West African mobility about mobility in general? Yeah, so so throughout the book, so I talk when when I say that 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 um that automobility is is misplaced, um I'm uh utilizing Roberta Schwartz's uh I, concept of misplaced ideas. So it's not that it's not that automobility doesn't apply in a West African context. Um it's that the same systems that created automobility in the US um aren't present in West Africa. So that when you when you transport it and actually he when when he's introducing, it's interesting because when he's when Schwartz is introducing his concept of misplaced uh, uh, ideas, he's talking about Brazil, um, and he says something. I'm paraphrasing, but you know, we didn't create romanticism and we didn't create the car industry, but you know, when you import it into Brazil, interesting things happen. Um, and so he he was also talking about both cars and literary forms. Um, so when you when you when you when automobility comes into West Africa, um, the argument that that I'm making playing off of Schwartz is that the core antagonisms, this idea that automobility is always about personalized individual mobility um, that kind of prevents collective mobility, this, this core antagonism, um, just becomes clearer in different ways and comes to the fore in different ways. Um, so I do, in my conclusion, I talk about how um, how it's a it's a book that's about West African automobility, but, but I hope that people that are interested in thinking about automobility or thinking about car culture more broadly also also can kind of see some of these 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 core antagonisms these contradictions of automobility um, sort of the multiple ways that the car is part of um, aspiration and part of modernity and part of self-making and also you know part of part of the destruction that's very inherent in it um, how, how that comes to the fore and I, I actually think about this I've been thinking about it a lot lately because um, because I just started, this is this is kind of embarrassing uh, in a way. I just started to drive. I've known how to drive, but I haven't had a car, um, with the exception of one year, for a long time. And um, people oftentimes ask me if I if I'm a car fanatic, um, and that's what kind of you know drew me to the to this project. And actually, um, which at this point in our conversation shouldn't be surprising, um, what drew me to the pro- to the project is I have a profound ambivalence about cars. Um, so so we recently moved um, away from. I lived in Washington D.C. We used to live in an apartment on, right on a bus line and and very close to to a metro stop. We moved away um, and wound up getting a second car. And, and so in some ways, which is, which is relief in some ways, because before we got the second car and we lived here, um, I was taking two different buses to get my kids to their two different schools and then an Uber or a Metro and a train to campus. Um, it took two hours on the, on the days that I had to get my kids to school. So, so we got this car and all of a sudden I have, you know, I've got more time. I've got more time to, to class prep and which means that at night I don't have to class prep in the same way and uh, more time to, to hang out with students on campus because I can get to pick up the kids sooner. Um, but also, I, I've I've got this profound ambivalence in that I'm now another car on the road, um, and I'm using gas in a way that I wasn't. Right? Um, did did 
you know, the, the car I bought was not a Tesla. Um, and I'm less social. I don't run into people on the bus or the metro um, in the way that, that I used to. And so, and so, you know, I'm thinking about this in my own life. And this is that this is kind of the rub of, of neoliberal capitalism away, right? What is good for the individual, um, what's making my life easier um, uh, is not necessarily good for the social or good for the collective, right? I'm now also right, another car um, competing in DC traffic. Um, so, you know, just just at, a, at this personal level, but really, but really the social implications of all that, right? Because automobility, what's so fascinating about it to me from the from the get go is that the car is just this this part of everyday life that people are always talking about, always thinking about, um, always making use of, but also um, that's connected to all these 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 global. Um, these global issues, these global problems um, at, at the city level, um, right? That it's connected to so many things. So it's this everyday object that's also connected to to so many broader um, important issues. Yeah, as a uh, as a child of the DC suburbs myself, I certainly know that uh, frustration and freedom that comes with uh, right. comes with car culture there. <laughs> so we've taken up a lot of your time, and I'm very right. Great. Yeah, it's very it's yeah, very ambivalent. So we've taken up a lot of your time, um, but before we go, uh, could you tell us a bit about the project you're working on at the moment? Yeah, right now um, I'm uh, f- finishing up um, uh, a sabbatical um, and I, I'm, I'm finishing up the first draft of a book called Queer African Cinemas. So um, in some ways it's very different than the automobility project, but in some ways I'm uh, working with a lot of the same things, themes about looking at different forms um, that that films are taking and, and how they deal with um, queerness and and questions of, of of resistance. So we've got a chapter on Nollywood film again, and a um, chapter that looks at some some francophone films again. Um, also, it's not I've I've moved out of just the the, the West African framework. So I also looking at South Africa um, and East Africa, some of the films that have been coming out. Uh, of Kenya in particular um, over the past couple of years. Um, so it's fun. Um, my head is, my head has been in that, in that project for so long. So it was kind of a nice break to go back and re look at post-colonial automobility and, and kind of think about some of the things that made that, that first book um, click and connect. Well, that sounds like a fantastic project and I look forward to seeing that when it comes out. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Anthropology. I've really enjoyed our conversation despite uh, some technical difficulties. <laughs> but apropos, apropos, right? Um, no, thank you very much for having me. It's been great. <laughs>